Well, Father, we humbly come before you. As your people on this day, we need your help so desperately to, to keep the defenses of our souls from keeping your word from doing its work. Would you give us open ears so that your implanted word might go deep within us? Might you reach even into the deep recesses of our hearts, the, the areas we don't want your word to reach? And would you change us from the inside out? Would you make us into a people that reflect your great character and love and mercy and justice? Oh, Father, would you have your way amongst us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 20 years ago in one day, life as we know it changed, didn't it? I'm sure many of you have been thinking about what happened on September the 11th, where 3,000 people killed in that horrendous act of violence. It changed the world as we know it. It changed the global politics of the world in which we live. It changed our nation, that's for sure. But it did more than change the big stuff in the world. It also changed many individual lives, certainly the lives of those who lost someone, the lives of those who sent their best and youngest among them off to war, the lives of those who were injured, and then even the lives of those who were resolved to make a difference, to change the way they lived. One of those was uh, the story of a doctor named Ashish Jha. He was on that fateful morning scheduled to be in the Pentagon for a very important government meeting. As the Lord would have it, that meeting was relocated on short notice to a, a building right outside the White House. He said that his first clue that something, uh, that something unusual had happened was when all of the government officials in the Department of Defense simultaneously had their beepers go off and all got up and left without a word. For 30 minutes, the rest of the meeting waited in suspense until they too were told they needed to evacuate and get to a safe place. Now, thankfully, Dr. Ja and his family ended up being safe. But the events of 9-11 sparked a change within him. He said he decided on that day that he would give his life toward helping veterans in any way he could. Certainly that's an honorable thing to use your life for, a good worth pursuing. I know there are many that made decisions like that after 9-11. Decisions to enter the military or to go into some sort of civil service. Decisions to get involved with helping the survivors and those who lost loved ones. There were many individual lives that suddenly became concerned with how they could change the world for the better. Now we live 20 years later, and I would say it's safe to say that we're more concerned than ever as a society with making big societal changes. It doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you might find yourself on, you have someone within that stream of our society pushing for big changes. The pro-life movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the climate crisis movement, the Me Too movement. People seem more convinced than ever that changes need to be made. We just can't disagree on what those changes are. That puts Christians in a very difficult spot. 
How are you as a Christian supposed to live in a society moving simultaneously two very different directions and how do you do it all as a citizen of heaven? Someone entrusted with the gospel, a, a message that changes the hearts and saves the souls, but isn't necessarily primarily concerned with changing society. Well, to help us untie those thorny knots of questions is Micah chapter 6. It's a passage in our Bibles that shows us that God is very concerned for his people to be a people that are more than just religious outwardly, concerned with ritual, that God wants his people to reflect his character. What the Lord wants is for his people to be changed by his word to live lives of justice in the world. Let me say that again. What God wants is for his people to be changed by his word so that they can live lives of justice in this world. As we study it together, I hope you will be encouraged that you as a Christian have something very valuable to bring to the place in which you live. And that your hope, it extends far beyond the change that anyone can bring to this world except your Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll move through this passage in, in two sections. First, we will see that we need to be changed by the word. To be changed by the word. And then second, that we need to live justly in the world. We need to live justly in the world. Now, you'll notice I didn't give you the verses to go along with that. Uh, that's partly because the, the passage is a little bit of a circle and with a distinct point in the middle. But I will give you the verses that are important as we move through. Uh, one other note is that this is another of Micah's courtroom scenes. So I'm not going to spend as much time on this, uh, the specifics of the courtroom uh, 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 feature of literature, because we already covered that in chapter 3. Instead, I'm going to spend more time on the message that comes out in this courtroom. So let's begin in this first section, be changed by the word. The, those first five verses are a very stark and scathing indictment from the Lord. Once again, we find ourselves in God's courtroom. This time he's calling the very mountains to be his witnesses. And as he does, we realize that the person or the group that he is indicting is very different. In the first few chapters of Micah, we saw that the Lord had strong words for the leaders among God's people. The judges, the, the prophets, even the, the rich landowners. But here we see that God now has his people Israel as a whole in his crosshairs. Look in verse 3. Oh, my people... What have I done to you? God has his people Israel as a whole in mind as he lists the sins of the nation. Now, what were the sins of the nation? Well, there, there are two main ones. The first is in three through five. They had forgotten his grace. Uh, he, he gives them a bit of a, a history lesson. He, he asks them, what, rhetorically, what have I done wrong to you? How have I failed to live up to my obligations to you? Don't you remember how I gave you Moses and Miriam and Aaron? Remember how I gave you good leaders to even lead you out from the slavery of Egypt? 
Uh, Don't you remember how I led you into the promised land, even when the nations conspired to try to keep you out? As God does this little history lesson, with this rhetorical question in mind, the guilt of God's people is only ratcheting up. Because while God has kept his obligations to them, they have not kept their obligations to him. Uh, we see what that, those failure to live up to their obligations are in verses 10 through 12. They have failed to live life according to his revealed plan for his people. They are living unjustly. He asked them, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? In other words, there's so much sin, so much wickedness, it's like your house is full to the brim of it. And then in 11 and 12, we get the picture of what was going on. You have people with imbalanced scales, with unfair weights. Those are the Units that were used in commerce to be able to make sure that economic transactions were fair to everyone. He says that they are so corrupt that even your supermarket transactions were chances for people to steal from each other. In 12, we see that the rich men among them, not only have they been grabbing land, but they are full of violence. People are getting what they can get, even if they have to use force to get it. This scathing indictment that God gives only gets worse as we move toward the end. We see that it will result in God's judgment coming upon them. Verse 13, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Then it comes that long list of things that will happen. All of their work, all of their efforts will result in absolutely no prosperity. No wine to drink, no oil to anoint with. All of their work will be for nothing because God is about to send them into exile. Now, this is undoubtedly a scathing indictment. And it's important for us to see it's not against just the powerful and the elites, the leaders of God's people. It's against the people as a whole, your everyday Israelite. Now, One of the difficult parts you have to go through when you are studying an Old Testament passage like this is how do you go from the text to today? Uh, We need to be very clear on the front end. The United States is not the nation of Israel. The United States is not in a special covenant with God, with an anointed king on a throne, reigning over God's people. And that means it's inappropriate to run from the covenant structure and specifics of the covenant for God's people straight to the nation in which we live and the concerns we have today. Now, instead, we realize that we are God's people as the church. And so that's why mostly up until this point, we've been spending our attention looking at how these Uh, 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 these prophecies from Micah speak to Christians today. And yet, we also have to realize that if you're a whole Bible Christian, that the Bible has a lot to say about how you are to think about the nation in which you live. Uh, One principle that comes out of Proverbs is very helpful. Proverbs 14, verse 34, says that righteousness exalts a nation... But sin is a reproach to any people. 
Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs give general principles for the way God operates in the world. So you can say confidently that this is the way God operates. That when a nation becomes characterized by overwhelming sin, well, it's not long until that nation begins to sink beneath God's judgment. On the other hand, when a nation, when a nation lifts up God's virtues, the, the things in line with what God's revealed about human flourishing and human dignity and the image of God, then that, that will result in blessing for that nation. Now, a little bit of biography about me. Both of my parents are immigrants from Central America. I have grown up in the United States, and it's not lost on me that I have lived a more prosperous and free life than anyone in my family tree before me, and undoubtedly a more prosperous and more free life than I ever would have lived if I had grown up in one of the countries my parents were from, uh, El Salvador or Belize. I love the country in which I was born, the United States. Uh, I hope you, if you're an American citizen, you also feel a sense of even duty and obligation and a love for the country that God has placed you in. And especially since this is the weekend, just a day after the 20th anniversary of September 11th, I, I want to take a moment to thank any of you that have been involved serving in the armed forces or in government. Thank you for the sacrifices you've made. Uh, and thank you for uh, undertaking a worthy endeavor, one that promotes human flourishing. Now, with that said, as Christians, we need to be able to, with love, be honest about the nation in which we live. Ask yourself, if you were to have uh, the prophet Micah give a God's eye view of our country, what would be the indictment he might bring? I don't think we have to be prophets with the exact words of God behind our assessments to be able to see some very obvious sins, sins that you don't need a microscope to see in our society. We can think of our history as a nation, even early on, that horrible institution of American chattel slavery. Uh, it's hard to imagine a sin more designed to undermine the image of God than buying and selling humans, all the people that lost lives, all the generations of horrendous injustice and mistreatment that resulted of it. We should be thankful for the Civil War. We should be thankful for the Civil Rights Movement, the blood that was shed, the effort put forward to change the laws in our land so that that would no longer be the case. And yet as Christians, we should be very sober about the fact that changed laws don't necessarily change hearts. This last year we saw with the death of George Floyd, the protests and riots in our major cities, there is still fallout from the sin of racism in the United States. Or, or what about the sins of abortion? 60, over 60 million children killed in the womb and counting. We have made it into a lucrative industry, trying to make it as convenient and guilt-free and painless as possible. We've even made it into an unquestioned good by about half the country. Or what about the sexual revolution? Certainly it started with how we thought about divorce. No fault divorce, just agree to disagree, go your separate ways. But now it's worked out even beyond that. Now, 
25% of the kids in the United States only have one parent in the home. What about how the homosexual rights movement has gained so much traffic, uh, traction, even being enshrined in law with gay marriage, to the point where not only do you have to accept if someone is openly gay, but you have to celebrate it or else you have to pay the consequences. Or, or the new frontier, what about transgenderism? Wanting to be able to redefine ourselves in whichever way we see fit. And if you dare to say that God might have something to say about who we are as men and women and the way he created us, well, you're considered a bigot. We can look at the fall of religion in our country. Now, the United States was never 100% a Christian nation, but it was undoubtedly overwhelmingly made up of people that were Christians. And we just recently reached the point where less than 50% of people regularly attend church at all. I hope hearing these obvious sins of the nation we live in, a nation I hope you love, leads you to ask some very sober questions. Lord, help us. What should we as Christians living here in this time, in this place, how should we respond? Well, I know immediately we want to respond with ways that we should change the country we're in. That's good. We'll get there. But before that, remember the lesson that Micah had for his people. God's people need to be first changed by his word if they'll be able to live justly in God's world. We can't forget the words that God has given us in his scriptures. We need to be changed ourselves by what God has revealed in his law and what he's revealed in the cross of Jesus. If we ever get to a point where we find ourselves acting without first getting on our knees and praying before the scriptures that God has given us, carefully considering what God wants in this situation, well, we are in great, great danger. So I need to ask, brothers and sisters, how are you making sure that you are being changed by the word of God? It's good that you are here this Sunday morning hearing this sermon. It's certainly good to regularly be here in church, to be under the regular preaching of God's word. But I submit to you that as a Christian, your diet of God's word needs to be even greater than that. You need other Christians around you helping you to see what God's word says so you don't miss areas that you might be blind to. That's one of the reasons small groups are so helpful to study the Bible in community. You need to be studying the Bible on your own, prayerfully considering what God needs to change your heart in this morning. I pray that the Lord will make us as a church into a people that always seek to be changed by the word before we seek to go out and change the world. Now, what does it actually mean to live out this sort of desire to do good in the place God has placed us? So that's our second point. Live justly in the world. In verses 6 through 7, we see, frankly, a rather pathetic attempt to plea bargain by God's people. Uh, they get up in the midst of the proceedings, and you can imagine a little swagger as the defense attorney gets up, and he says, uh, okay, God... You tell us what needs to happen in order for us to make this right. We can come out to some sort of arrangement here. Uh, what do you want? Do you want, do you want a sacrifice? Should I, should I bring a calf? And then things got, start ratcheting up. 
They get more and more ridiculous as the numbers increase. Uh, you want a thousand rams? Uh, 10,000 rivers of oil? God, what's it going to take to make this go away? Will it take the firstborn, my dearest possession of the very fruit of my body, in order to save my soul? Now, the point in capturing this failed defense is to show us that you can't buy God off with religious ritual. God's not interested with just the form of his people worshiping him. He wants people that genuinely worship him from the heart. And that's going to require hearts that are transformed, even in the way they live. And that's the context for verse 8, which is undoubtedly the most famous verse in the entire book of Micah. You likely have heard it before. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. It's a wonderful verse, and it has a lot to say about how we as Christians think about how God would have us to live. There are three parts to it. I want to take a moment to look at each. We'll spend the most on the first section, do justice. As I was studying through the Old Testament, everywhere where the word justice that's used here in the Hebrew is used, tried to come up with a definition of sorts, and I, I found I couldn't come up with a better one than the one given by Dr. Bruce Walke. It's this. Justice, used in the Bible, means this. It means fulfilling mutual obligations in a manner consistent with God's moral law. It means fulfilling mutual obligations in a manner consistent with God's moral law. You could say it's everyone at every level, at every time, meeting their obligations as defined by God toward each other. If you had a place in a time where that was happening perfectly, you would have the kingdom of heaven on earth. Justice is very important to God. It flows straight from his character. It's connected to the concept of righteousness. That is God's rightness in all that he does and all he demands that we do. And we see here that God tells his people to do justice. Now, before we go any further, I need to pause because there's a very important consideration we need to make. See, there are more than one definition of justice floating around in our society right now. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, um, I think, captures this well. He writes, justice is one of these misunderstood situations today. Uh, specifically, social justice has become a convoluted term, meaning different things to different people. It's often used as a catchphrase for illegitimate forms of government, promoting the redistribution of wealth and the expansion of civil government. This is why I use the term biblical justice. Biblical justice seeks to protect individual liberty while promoting personal responsibility. It is the equitable, equitable and impartial application of the rule of God's moral law in society. There's no clear and right definition of justice that excludes God. I think Dr. Evans is absolutely right. As I've been studying this issue uh, more and more over the last couple of years, come to the conviction that there is a very deficient view of justice that mainly views the world through the lens of power. The world is broken up into those who have power and those who are oppressed by it. 
In, in this framework, justice is just a lever to get the people on the bottom without power to the top with it. And the worst part about it is it doesn't matter what sort of collateral damage you do along the way. If you have to crack a few eggs to make this omelet, well, justice would demand it. Now, frankly, as a Christian, I think that this is a wholly unbiblical understanding of justice. For one, if we adopt a definition of justice that would make King Solomon into a great oppressor in his day, I think we've run completely off field considering the Bible tells us God gave wisdom so Solomon could execute justice. Uh, secondly, God is concerned with justice every direction, for everyone at every time. That means as Christians, we can never give in to the temptation to give justice to one party while it means uh, an injustice to another. Now, with all that said, there's a lot that we'll need to consider to, and unpack about how Christians are to engage in doing justice. We'll get there in just one second. But there's two more quick considerations to have here. Uh, the second thing that we're told is that we are to love mercy. Love mercy. Now, the Hebrew word there is hesed. You might know that from God's covenant, steadfast love. You might say this is the motivation that God gives for his people to continue their lives of fulfilling obligations to each other. It's because God has fulfilled his obligations to them. God's faithfulness means we live faithfully with the obligations he places upon us by his law. The third is to walk humbly. To walk humbly before, uh, with our God. Humility is the only way to rightly see how God would have you live in this world. Humility says that God's ways are better than our ways. God's timing is better than our timing. Even the, the outcomes that God has for us when they don't line up with our outcomes. If we are humble before the Lord, we'll be able to accept them and even live faithfully in the midst of them. God intends for his people to be a, a people that are changed by his word and as a result who live justly in this world. Now, how do we actually go about applying this to the day we live as Christians? Let me give you three ways that I want to encourage you as a Christian to live this out, to, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The first is realize the great Christian history there is in doing justice. Uh, sometimes Christians are very for, rightfully concerned that the, the call for Christians to be engaged in societal change might lead to a watering down of the gospel. We, we've learned the lessons of liberalism, where the church basically turned into just another social institution. And so in an effort to keep ourselves from going the same direction, Christians pull back and say, we, we just preach the gospel and we don't worry about anything else in society. But remember, Jesus told us that we are meant to be a city on a hill. That we're supposed to live in such a way that the world sees our light shining. That even as the gospel is our primary means of being faithful in this world, preaching it, being changed by it. That the good works that we do to, with our neighbors, that's meant to adorn the gospel that we preach. To make our witness even more effective. And down through history, we see the pattern of Christians doing just that. In the early church, Christians were known for those that would go and rescue children left to die of exposure. 
They were known as those who would go and care for the sick when the plagues went, ran through the city, even when it meant they would catch the plague themselves. They were the ones that started orphanages and hospitals, the ones pushing education. Christians were the ones that people knew were out to help the city to flourish. Realize even, as we move closer to our own day, many of our great missionary heroes were involved with social causes. William Carey in India, as he worked to spread the gospel, he saw that there was this grave injustice where they would burn the widow whose husband died on the husband's funeral pyre. He and his Christian friends got involved with local politics and worked to change that law so that injustice would stop. Or what about William Wilberforce? One of the great abolitionists in his day, a deeply convinced Christian, you would say a gospel Christian, who used his influence in parliament to end that great injustice. We can't just put our heads in the sand and pretend as if the sins of our society don't exist. Now, we, we see from this passage that we are intended to live out heaven's values, even in the day and place in which we live. That's the first thing. Realize there's a long history of it, and you are a part of it. Second is a warning. Make sure you are being biblical in doing justice. I came across a social media quote that I thought was very apt. The writer said, look... I'm as surprised as anybody, but the Bible just happens to align with the current values and lifestyles of me and my friends. I think many of us as Christians are far too susceptible to take a, something that seems good to us and try to find biblical justification for it instead of starting with what the Bible says and then working out to how we are to live today. Now, I'm not for a second telling you not to be concerned with the things your neighbors are concerned with. I'm telling you, you need to search the scriptures as you do. And I, I, a particular word to our church, the place to do this is inside the church. Your small group is the place where you should be asking the question, hey guys, I, I think this passage is leading me to this conclusion about how I should be involved with this cause. What do you guys think? We have a role to play in helping each other to become more biblical as we seek to do justice in this world. Use the benefit of fellow church members for that purpose. Invite someone to coffee. Go out to lunch after service. and give, uh, Work through what it is that the Lord has on your heart. And point them to the specific verses that you think in your mind should lead you to that conclusion. Ask them to help you evaluate it. Third, we need to be gracious in doing justice. We need to be gracious in doing justice. We live in an extremely polarized time societally. Politics is a blood sport. The two wings of political power are further apart than they have been at any time in my lifetime. And unfortunately, much of that bleeds into the way that people inside the church converse with each other or even talk about each other. Christians very often lack charity and assume the worst about each other when they see another Christian involved in some area of trying to do justice that they may not be as clear on or may even have different convictions about. We need to realize that all, not all Christians are going to be as energized about the same issues in our culture as we are. We also need to realize that 
not all Christians are going to come to the same exact convictions that we have on whatever issue you might think about. It does no good to try and just short-circuit the whole conversation process by just slapping labels on each other. Please don't lob bombs of names at each other by calling one side woke and the other side uh, white supremacist. Take the time to actually listen, to consider, and to search the scriptures to see whether a conviction that another Christian has is something you agree with or not. Now, we also need to be mature enough to know that there are such things as straight line issues in the Bible and jagged line issues. What I mean by that is a straight line issue is something the Bible is abundantly clear on, something that all Christians need to be on the same page about, and how it uh, plugs into what we, uh, how we live out today. And then there are issues that are, frankly, less clear. So, for instance, Christians should all be on the same page that abortion is murder and that we need to work to end abortions from happening. But Christians could disagree about what strategy we should take in order to accomplish that end. Should we take the strategy that the state of Texas has just put into uh, effect right now? Or should we take some other avenue to trying to uh, end that injustice? Uh, Similarly, along the lines of racism, All Christians should agree that racism is evil in God's sight. We should do everything we can to stop racism from happening in our society. But we likely are going to disagree about whether changing laws or specific structures in society is the best way to accomplish that. When we come to these sort of questions that don't come straight from the Bible to our day-to-day, we need to be very humble. We need to remember that God will show us by his spirit and by his word, how he has for us to live out this call to do justice. And we need to have lots of charity and grace toward other Christians who may come to different convictions. Uh, one last principle, and that is you should be seeking to do justice locally in your church before you try and do it on the outside to change the world. Uh, I'm getting this from uh, author Jonathan Lehman. In his book, How the Nations Rage, he makes the case that the church is the first arena for Christians to live out their societal requirements under God. That church is the place where your impulse to seek out justice, to do good to your neighbor, to be involved in making a positive impact should be lived out. That means if you have the impulse maybe to do something about how many people, how how many kids are growing up without a father. Before you try and make big societal changes, ask yourself, what can I do in my church? Is there a child that's growing up with only one parent in the household? Is there some way I can support that family? Is there some way I can create a structure within our church that could help people around our church in that area? Or, Or what about if you're concerned about poverty? Before you go trying to change the way we distribute money at the federal level, maybe you try to get involved with your church's benevolence team. See if you can walk alongside those who are materially poor right in our midst. And maybe God will let that initiative grow until it impacts all of society. Or maybe you're concerned about abuse and people mistreating even those in their own family. You know, just by being a faithful member in your church, even practicing church discipline, 
you are actually doing justice. It may be that you have the opportunity to declare that someone is living in sin by not living up to their obligations to their wife or their children. And you as a church member, as you cast that vote, you are doing justice in that moment. Now, I'm not for a second saying you shouldn't be involved in trying to change the world in a big way. But realize how rare it is. Even for those who give their lives to that sort of work, how rare it is to see those big changes bear fruit. But what you can do is before the Lord, ask him just to show you what can I do with the people you have right in front of me, starting in my church. How can I be changed by your word and how can I live justly in your world? I'll end with this. One of our staff members, uh, Damien, got a phone call uh, there was a, a young man who had a community service requirement as a, a part of paying his debt to society. He had been calling around trying to find some church or charitable organization that let him get community service hours, having trouble doing so. He was shocked that Damien called him back and even more shocked when Damien said, sure, come play around with me in the woods and burn stuff and cut down old trees and things. He and Damien built a great friendship. I, I got to meet him. The rest of our staff did. He, he did a great job, worked really hard. As they got to talking, Damien realized that at the end of this community service requirement, he would need to show proof that he completed it as well as go to a, a court hearing and pay a fine. As they spoke more about it, Damien noticed that there was a little bit of cynicism there. Uh, I don't know if it's really going to work out. I'm not sure if I'm going to go. Stuff like that. Damien got the sense that maybe he was not going to do the things that he needed to do in order to have his debt from society be marked as paid. So he offered, hey, do you want me to come with you to court? The young man said, sure. So Damien took a day out of his week and went with him to court. He listened to all the things the judge had to say. He helped the young man to take notes, make sure that he didn't miss anything important. He went with him afterward to the correct government official brought the proof that he committed his community service, brought the fine that needed to be paid, make sure there were copies of everything, encouraged the young man to dot all the I's, cross the T's. After it was all done, the young man was very grateful, said, thank you, that was very helpful of you. A couple days went by, and the young man called Damien distraught. He got a phone call saying that he had to report to jail the next day. Turned out, somewhere in the gears of government, his paperwork had been misplaced. And no matter who he pled to, it didn't seem like anyone was really going to help him. He was convinced he was going back to jail. Now, in this case, Damien knew God had him in this spot for this moment. So he picked up the phone and started calling people, spent a lot of time, a lot of frustration, multiple phone calls until he finally got things sorted out. The end result, the paperwork was accepted. The young man didn't end up in a jail cell he didn't deserve to be in. Damien told me that the young man told him he was blown away. He said, why would, why would someone go out of their way to help someone like me? Now, that doesn't solve all of society's woes. But it is being faithful. It is living justly, treating people the way God intends for them to be treated. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what specific situations the Lord will have you in this week, but I do know he wants this for you. 
as someone who's been changed by his word, he wants you to live justly in this world. He wants when the the world looks at your life for them to see a picture of heaven's values so that when you tell them about the king of heaven, King Jesus, the good news of his gospel will be adorned with your good works. Let's pray.